0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM, and it's episode 9 on today's programme Old Vines. What's the big deal? We know they often make better wines, but it runs a lot deeper than that, literally. We'll find out why with Sarah Abbott MW, who's on a mission to make the world revere our old vine elders. She's really incredibly passionate about it and utterly fascinating. And the great whiskey debate. If you've wondered whether you should be sipping single malt or whether blended could actually be better, then our spirits guru, Joel Harrison, a keeper of the quake, no less, is here to help us. Plus, we'll have our usual selection of medal winning wines and spirits from the IWSC Hall of
1: Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Old
0: vines. Sometimes you see it mentioned on the label. Uh, It's usually a sign of something finer, something to treasure. Perhaps you might even pay a premium for it. But can you honestly say it goes much further than that? Well, master of wine Sarah Abbott would like you to go a lot further. In fact, She wants to galvanise a global movement to celebrate and protect old vines, which is quite an ambition and a worthy one. And she's here to tell us why. Sarah, hello.
2: Hello, David.
0: How are you? Thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour this morning. Oh,
2: thank you. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. And, you know, thank you for the opportunity.
0: Well, you're welcome. An obvious starting point. Uh, Why should we care? about old vines?
2: Good question. And on this, I would like to borrow a phrase actually from Janetis Robinson, Master of Wine, who said about 10 years ago that really heritage old vineyards are the wine world's equivalent of sort of the um, national, um, international wildlife <laughs> trust. You know, they they are a source of not just Like grapevine diversity, but they also are basically the living embodiment of often centuries of agriculture and human culture. And the reason we should care about them is because we are losing them at a very fast rate, because frankly, they take a bit more effort. They take more hands-on attention, and they are really not They're absolutely not conducive to high production, modern agricultural techniques, but they are special. And we should care because if we don't start caring, they're all going to go. And once they've gone, they're gone.
0: Yeah, well, that is a, you've articulated why we should uh, care about it. What prompted you personally to take up the cudgels on this? Because you, you really have, you've gone for it big time.
2: Uh, Well, I am just one person who cares about this stuff. There are many famous and cult and visionary people who have been advocating for this kind of appreciation, actually, for about 30 years. I was inspired to get involved because... Well, I've always cared about them. I'm really interested in the heritage of wine, the history of wine, and the way in which the heritage of wine and vines really tells the story of humanity. That's why I love wine, basically. And I was prompted for this particular project for this at this time because I was approached by some, a company who wanted to launch a range of specific Old Vine wines that would then go to support vineyard heritage. And my response to that was that, look, um, just trying to do this as a single brand on your own, it won't get you anywhere because the designation Old Vine or vieille Vigne or however you say it in various different countries, it's meaningless, basically, because it has no regulation. It has no protection. Like so, for example, if you say to a normal human, you know, free range chicken, they have a concept in their head immediately yeah, of absolutely. how that produce has been raised as opposed to battery farm chicken. Now, people then decide whether they want free range or battery farm, but the point is they have they have a concept that there's a difference. That there's a difference ethically, culturally, and probably um, in terms of kind of flavor and quality as well. And yet, when we talk about old vines in wine, although invariably they are associated with a certain approach, which is holistic, it's good for societies, it very much is associated with high quality, that idea hasn't really been communicated outside of perhaps a very small audience of producers and uh, connoisseurs. So so I wanted to get involved because I am really passionate about communicating messages that I think are important to help good business be done. And that came together. I was supported by two fantastic partners, Leo Austin and Alan Griffiths, MW. We co-founded a, a non-profit and I've been enormously supported by so many people in wine and it's really taken off.
0: I was reading, doing my research, some of the evangelising about this project. And it's wonderful. You must be so, so encouraged. Um, uh, Tamlin Curran in uh, Writing for Jansis uh, wrote a, a beautiful piece about the first of your um, conferences that, uh, that you had uh, a, a few months ago. And I know we have another one coming up, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, just so I'm clear, when you're talking about an old vine, if I'm a vine, how old do I have to be to get your attention?
2: Ah, oh, that's a really good question. And it varies from place to place the first thing to say is that vines respond to their environment in different ways and some climates are kind of more aging to a vine than others so um we have taken as a baseline the number that is adopted by a couple of the most cohesive old vine support groups that do exist in certain countries. So we take as a baseline 35 years of age. Now, that's the minimum age that you see certified, for example, in the South African old vine project, a fantastic project. And also it's the minimum age that you see certified for the Barossa old vine charter. Having said that, David, there are plenty of people, winemakers in Spain, Spain, uh, France, um, and Italy actually. Who would say thirty-five? That's not very old. the The thing is that you know South Africa, for example, is quite the hard yards if you're a vine. And thirty five years of age is not just the point at which actually you tend to get the key factors that are associated with balance and quality, but also. 35 years is um, an absolutely ripe time when vines are dug up and replaced. Ah,
0: so if
2: you scoop them up into your system at around that age, obviously we're talking about vines that are being managed well, you know, and just because something is old doesn't mean that it's great, but there is absolutely a correlation between people who are interested in planting a vine for the long term and everything that entails people who are interested in that are generally then very committed to sustainable agricultural practices regenerative practices in the sense that you don't just you don't just say i'm not doing any harm you actually use the quality of what you produce to benefit the community it usually means that you see very often they will be working in terms of their agricultural practices with a minimal or no pesticides um, or synthetic herbicides. You know, it's, it's immediately linked to this kind of long term soil health agriculture. I think that's one of the reasons that it's so powerful. And because are you being you...
0: kind of picky here about which vines we're talking about? Because, uh, you know, I can imagine it's very easy to uh, romanticise an old vine Riesling, whereas if next door there's, uh, you know, a 50-year-old um, um is that going to have your affections, uh, your attention in the same way? Are you talking about all vines here?
2: That is a great question. And yes, you are. because. Very often, what happens with really wealth, I mean, first of all, what you tend to find about many heritage vineyards is that they're in the most fantastic locations quality-wise. And they were planted there because they were planted there at a time when the only thing the farmer had to rely on was basically his his or her own skill and kind of work. And putting the right vine in the right place you know so this is why a lot of them for example are dry farmed you know they're unirrigated they're bush trained etc and all of these are natural adaptations to keeping the vine healthy and alive for as long as possible because they didn't have a quick fix you know (laughs) so they didn't have irrigation they didn't have mechanization so they would just put it in the best place um now with regard to varieties there's a couple of issues there one issue is that we have fashions in grape varieties and the fashion at the moment is for this huge internationalization of grape varieties and i heard one sommelier describe it as cultural colonialism in that uh, there's this real good preference words. yeah well yeah. <laughs> well look first of all France is fantastic. France was my introduction to wine and makes amazing wine. The thing is that what is happening around the world is that the plantings of vine varieties are really dominated by about 20 main varieties. And they tend to be what you call the internationals. Actually, these internationals are are predominantly classic French varieties. Um, Now, these kind of fashions are... Uh, you know, in the scheme of things, they are short-lived. You will find, for example, that you'll have quirky, lesser seen, lesser known varieties that have fallen out of fashion or, you know, um, have been ignored in in favour of just more commercially fashionable varieties. But actually, they are brilliant there. They belong there. And this happens... Everywhere I was speaking to um, a actually a wine a winemaker a very boutique winemaker in England, who had managed to get hold of some a vineyard of nearly fifty year old Solaris, which is making absolutely brilliant wine, but basically that that is destined to be grubbed up and replanted with Chardonnay. Yeah. So so you get um, the whole thing about. This kind of approach to viticulture is that it's long-term and it's deeply connected to place and people. And I think that's what's powerful about it. And they, they essentially are doing everything with a view that this is here for a while. This is going to be here for two generations
0: I think it's really interesting uh, reading up on on what you're doing and some of the reasons for doing it. One of the things that hadn't really struck me was the extent to which uh, those old vines you mentioned with their long roots, um, in their, whether they're bush vines or, or not, I guess um, – are able to absorb water from far lower down uh, from water sources. So they're much more sustainable than those that are newer that require irrigation. And water use is a huge issue uh, in the modern world, isn't it?
2: Yes. And it's interesting, David, because I think the wine industry has so far had a bit of a free pass on these kinds of issues, you know, the actual costs, the environmental costs of our production. But the whole conscious consumerism movement is really here to stay, which I think is a good thing. And I think it is coming for wine. So, yes, it is true. Older vines, in you know, good, healthy old vines in the right place have really deep, well-developed root systems that means that they can tolerate extreme weather events especially drought the other thing they have is that they have these th- very thick trunks their kind of structure their woody structure which you know is um, eternal if you like even when they're dormant that structure is also like a kind of um like either like muscles or armor or it's kind of resilient to the vine so that's the other thing you it promotes a kind of strong vascular flow um and then there's another really fascinating aspect about why you get this resilience in old vines which is to do with epigenetic adaptability so um this concept actually this it's not a concept this phenomenon and it's in humans as well shows that our and vines genetic makeup basically changes according to what they've experienced. So if you're in, if you're a vine and you're in um, a vineyard where, you know, you get a bit of a, almost a drought kind of conditions in that last week of summer, you start to adapt as a vine. And that means that your genetic composition actually changes. And here's the interesting thing is that if you then take a cutting from that vine you will find that that adaptation remains even in the cutting. So this kind of value, this resilience of old vine value doesn't just benefit the plants that are currently in the ground. They actually mean that it's benefiting like the genetic material that can then be handed on.
0: Wow, so and, it's, we're getting into Darwinism yeah. here, really, aren't yeah. we? That, uh, <laughs> that sort of uh, that kind of uh, theory. I mean, if I uh, play devil's advocate, though, if I was a grower, purely a grower, a farmer, um, and, and I was looking at my yields, then surely if older vines produce less, they are less commercially sustainable, right?
2: Well, there's, I mean. <laughs> I'm well, thank you for the question. But actually, it's a fallacy that old vines automatically mean drastically reduced yields. And the uh, the issue with yield and old vines is that essentially, we've been doing it all wrong in the way that we prune them. And there are a number of pruning consultants all over the world who are now specializing in going around to wineries who've got these fantastic old vineyards, you know, heritage vineyards, of unique varieties making wine of great quality and interest. because I mean, we, we never just drink the wine you're also drinking the story. <laughs> you know, if, if, whenever you drink a wine that is anything beyond the most basic commodity wine, you've got some kind of context in your head for the associations that you have when you pick that bottle and pour the glass. But anyway, the essentially the main thing to get your head around is that vines are the uh, are nutters. You know, vines are these absolute, maniac climbers <laughs> you know, if you've ever mm. put a vine in your garden you see a vine i mean it goes it's a it's a liana it wants to romp yeah, it wants to put on wood they grow up trees, they they grow up trees. Yeah. and i mean and what basically we do is we kind of bonsai a vine when we make wine from it when we kind of domesticate it for for producing for producing grapes and the the essence of the latest wisdom on basically how to look after and particularly how to prune uh, vines so that they carry on being productive into their old age, is to give them a bit of their own, is to give them what they really want naturally, which is to let them have this structure and this wood. So you can kind of kind of soft pruning. But what these consultants do is they go... I mean, for example, I know um, Marco Simonit, who was a speaker at our first conference. He's fantastic. Kind of, he looks like Italian hipster dude, who's <laughs> like Mister Old Vine expert. But he was in California a couple of um, a couple of months ago, and. They can actually go in and go into these old vineyards where the producers are at their wits' end saying, "Oh God, we really want to keep this going, but you know literally we got three bunches of grapes off this last year and and they can say, "Well, it's because the way you've been pruning you're cutting off this key vascular throw flow, wow. you know you're basically kind of almost you know quarterizing this vine. You need to let this branch grow, et etc, and they really can bring it back. Yeah, yeah so I- it's changed we what we we've had an established way of what we think about as viticulture and and pruning and training and it's like a lot of agricultural trends. vine culture was very much influenced by the efficiencies of um increased scale production that really influenced food production as well Um, that started really post-Second World War, but really took off, you know, from, say, the 1970s. And just as you have with concerns like heritage grains, David, you know, um, land race, um, livestock, this sort of renewed value that's being placed on really... um, not just local and typical but also these all these expressions of agricultural wisdom tied to a place and and i see very much the old vine heritage and the interest in old vine heritage i think it's part of that conscious consumerism that renewed valuing of these very specific and unique and beautiful you know specialities.
0: Yeah and it's interesting that it's not just when I think of old vines I naturally think of Mount Etna or Santorini but actually I'm sitting here with my Lodi old vine mug with my coffee in it and and of course you talked you made reference to the work that's been done in South Africa some of the uh, pioneering work there with old vines this is Uh, to use the awful term, new world. This is very much uh, a new world thing as well as an old world thing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, you know, and um, the whole new world, old world, distinction it's never re- really worked i mean it's it's only worked if if you're kind of in the old world wanting to be slightly sniffy <laughs> about mm-hmm. about sort of um you know competitors really but some of the oldest vines in the world are in so called new world countries i mean the Lodi is a fantastic resource particularly of old vines in fandel which dates back to the early settlings um and the establishment of vineyards by italians um there's also really old vines in california of the mission grape which was taken there by the spanish you know um and Lodi has been a, a great uh, champion of old vine heritage and they have these fantastic old vine zins which have really been at the the heart of the quality of that kind of Central Valley, Fruity Reds. And the problem is with a lot of these old vineyards and the fruit, is the fruit is fantastic, but it gets swallowed up in fairly generic blends. Mm. So it gives the kind of the the richness to a lot of high volume blends. And it means that it's because it's not specified and it's not named, it's hard for it to achieve a higher value. So lots of those low-dye grape growers who are you know, gen, you know, second, third generation grape growers. They they are so committed to those vineyards, but they they sell their grapes, and they don't have a way to leverage the value because they don't have their own brands. Um, mm. So a lot of those grapes are there. There is a reduction in yield, but it's not. It needn't be drastic. But having said that, the value that the market is giving to these heritage old vines, which are, you know, everything's done by hand. There are no shortcuts. It it makes it harder to command a premium. That's starting to change. And actually what's happened with Lodi is some real superstar, you know, famous, acclaimed winemakers have said, this is amazing. And I'm going to be making, you know, single bottling wines. I'm going to put your vineyard on the label. I'm going to honor the origin
0: oh fantastic Um, and that's very much low down on the map that's really what you want to achieve here isn't it that kind of thing tell us uh, tell us how you're going to do it and how we can help
2: okay so the first stage is actually to uh, convey what we mean when we talk about old vines why they are in any way special and why they're different so that was the aim of the first conference to bring really trade, wine trade and wine media together to start to talk about that, to generate that kind of buzz. The next stage is really to then engage um, hospitality and wine retail in presenting these wines as a category. Because a lot of great wines on wine lists and in wine shops are from these, what I would call heritage vineyards. And, but yet, then they're, they're not generally identified as such. Again, they get lost in the, the offer. So um, at the second conference, we're really looking at ways and examples in which you make your old vine heritage a selling point. And so we're speaking with some fantastic winemakers, actually two women making great wine in the south of France who pioneered adopt an old vine scheme. And Uh, have kind of expressed their kind of old vine heritage with great kind of empathy and humor and have been really successful so that they're linking the people who are buying their wine directly to like the very best it's kind of what you would want all agriculture to be like it's kind of like the most romantic (laughs) but idealized but truthful version of what viticulture can be and we're also talking with more on a more academic scientific basis on the value of old vines to the genetic future and the resilience of the wine industry because the whole issue of um, really resilience and adaptation to climate change and other challenges such as diseases, it's about diversity. So diversity is robustness. And we are losing the genetic diversity. Of grapevines, and old vine heritage is very much part of that. So these old vine vineyards are not just valuable for what they give you right now; they're also valuable for the information they contain in their in their genes. And a lot of producers are doing work on that and are recuperating old vineyards, and are bringing forgotten grape varieties back.
0: We can uh, help by signing up as well, can't we? I I was on the website yesterday. I'm going to do it after we've spoken now myself. Um, But uh, just very briefly, um, what's uh, that going to help us achieve? Can we get a badge or a mug?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So the Old Vine Conference is a non-profit and we are building the membership. So anyone who cares about Old Vine heritage and all the all the other wonderful things that touch it can sign up for a member it's just it's 20 pounds for two years if you sign up you get to come to the online conferences and watch or watch them later for free you can also get involved by um, coming to some of our fundraising tastings and uh, events and we are just getting going with those we have our first one on the 29th of June and the other thing that really helps us is we will, to look out and to buy old vine wine. And we are making that easier for people because we have two main initiatives. One initiative is that we're partnering with jancisrobinson.com And um, Jancis Robinson herself has pioneered this old vineyard registry, um, which is a listing of great old vines all over the world um, compiled by Tamlin Curran. And we are working with them to put this database and take it out of a PDF and basically put it onto uh, like a a cloud database where we will be not only filling in more and more details of where all these great vineyards are, but then also adding information on how you can drink them. So where this will be going to. And we've had great support also from the trade so we have had retailers of wine who are basically adding heritage vineyard wine to their filters so that you can actually find and search and and buy wine that is made from these vineyards and made in this way
0: yeah Um, great and that also just increases the value the perceived value of it as well doesn't it it's a it's a fantastic uh initiative um i was kind of lost on the website and in reading uh, tam's stuff afterwards for about an hour last night it actually held me up doing my research but it's all just oh, so yeah. it's just fascinating it's it's really great the passion is there as well which is it's wonderful to speak to you about it um good luck for the next conference and thank you um i as i say i should be signing up as a, a supporter myself but thanks yes, so much for- www.oldvines.org. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get in.
2: Www.oldvines.org. <laughs> <laughs>
0: www.oldvines.org. There you go. Yes, please. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much, Sarah.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, David. Cheers.
1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode
0: in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Now it's time for the first of our medal-winning wines from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And it's to Italy first. And uh, Brunello di Montalcino from the excellent 2015 vintage. Villa Alcortile won a silver medal last year with 94 points, just one point shy of gold. I was on the judging panel for this one and we said a smooth offering of wild strawberry, blackberry and tobacco leaf. The tannins are fine and elegant and sweet spices weave through the fruit flavours seamlessly. An excellent example with a long finish. And that one's on sale at tannico.co.uk for £40. And next, a 1920 Grand Champagne Cognac from Hermitage Cognacs. You'll hopefully have heard... David Baker here last week, who was absolutely fascinating on his pursuit of rare old cognacs. This is one of his. It won a spirit gold outstanding at the IWSC in 2020. The judges said outstanding in complexity and structure with an enigmatic palette composed of an abundance of intricate layers of texture. Subtle yet established, notes of fresh fruit are enhanced in depth and complexity by Rancio notes. David was talking about Rancio last week. Expressive cardamom, cinnamon and hints of turmeric. An elegant spirit, they said. I think I was on the judging panel for this one. It's aged in oak for more than 70 years before being bottled and it's going to set you back £1,200 at hermitagecognacs.com but this is from 1920, don't forget. From vineyards in the Grand Champagne region which, uh, as you may know, has nothing at all to do with the sparkling wine of the same name. It refers instead to the amount of chalk in the soil which is very similar to champagne.
1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
0: Here's a question. Where are you when it comes to whisky? Single malt or blended? Is the former really superior to the latter, as conventional wisdom tends to suggest? And if so, why? Well, I am no whisky expert. To be honest, I've always found it a bit confusing, which is why we need someone who knows what they're talking about. Joel Harrison, a columnist for Club Enologique, a consultant, and most importantly in this context, a keeper of the quake, which is Scotch whisky's highest honour, joins us now. Uh, hello, Joel. Welcome along to The Drinking Hour. Hi, David. Thank you very much. I should say welcome back because you talked gin last time. But uh, whisky is an area that I am slightly lost by, as I confessed back then. I somehow got through my exams for the diploma, which is fairly basic stuff, I suppose. but. I've never really fully felt in command of it. So, so maybe you can help. And, and we should really start, I suppose, with definitions. If you don't mind, for my benefit, as much as anyone else's, can you spell out exactly what single malt means and then how blended is defined?
1: Absolutely, and the joy of um, talking about single malt, particularly if I'm in person hosting a tasting, is that the label provides the guide, really. I mean, single means that it's it's developed at, or made at a single distillery. Um, you often have malt on the label, single malt, and that means it's made from malted barley. Um, you might often have the word Scotch, that means it's made in Scotland, and then the final word, whiskey, and, and that means the definition of whiskey is that it, It must be matured in an oak cask for a minimum of three years and a day. So if you're picking up a bottle of whiskey and it says the words single malt scotch whiskey on there, you've got your own very basic guide. Single, single distillery, malt, malted barley, scotch, made in Scotland and whiskey matured for at least three years and a day. Okay, and then blended. Take us on with uh, what that entails. Blended is uh, a category of whiskey that brings together not just necessarily single malt whiskey but also um, grain whiskey so there is another category of of whiskey which is made in a copper um, column still so single malt whiskey must be made in a pot still like a giant copper kettle basically or it looks like a kind of ode to an onion it looks like a still it looks like a a sculpture of a giant onion and (laughs) it's a a batch process where the, the the beer that's created sort of malt beer goes in and it's distilled a couple of times sometimes three often twice to create a sort of 70, 72, 74 percent ABV spirit that then goes on to be matured and that has a really interesting funky sort of malty flavour. These are quite flavoursome single malts and we'll talk about that in a minute but grain whiskey, uh, 1808 the the coffee still or the column still or the patent still was developed and it was basically a a, more industrial still, as most things developed in the 1800s tended to be, Um, and it allowed you to make whiskey using unmalted, or sort of grain really, sort of corn or grains, and you could pass it through this column still, which is a series of micro-distillations. The result is a whiskey that came out which is is very light in flavour, and what they found, what blenders found, was that you would take these incredibly Funky, oily, um, really quite bold whiskies, uh, sort of fame, style of single malt that was around in the sort of mid 1800s. And you would round it out with this very delicate, very light grain whisky. And the result was a product that was much more palatable. And actually, in fact, it, it really changed the face of, of what we know as whisky today. In the lead up to the uh, late 1800s, a lot of the single malt whisky that was on the market was from quite remote places in Scotland, places like Campbelltown, which is down the bottom of the Mull of Kintyre. Isla whisky, was all, all quite peaty and heavy and oily. Um, I mean, really lovely stuff to drink, especially if you came across it today, you'd think it had a real quality to it, a sort of heavier side. But back then it was quite challenging and it was being drunk um, in toddies. So it was being mixed with honey and lemon and sugar to round it out. As grain whisky came through and they were able to lighten up these styles of whisky and Highland whisky, single malt whisky, developed as a more approachable style what you found was the blends were becoming more drinkable, more easy going and that's where uh, at the turn of the last century, so at the end of the 1800s, start of the 1900s the toddy fell out of favour in place of the whisky soda because whisky, blended whisky at the time, was a lighter product and Was much more applicable to being lengthened with soda for a sort of refreshing drink on the balcony of the uh, the British Empire, one would imagine. I always think of having a hot toddy when I've got a really
0: stinking cold, actually. Yes. I used to be mixed <laughs> one by my, my farmer uncle, and they were, it was about the only time as a, as a kid I ever had anything resembling whiskey. So is green <laughs> yeah. whiskey um, still a kind of big area in its own category
1: then? It's never really taken off as its own thing. It's quite light and Delicate. That the most famous example at the moment would be Hague Club, David Beckham's eponymous brand, which is in that sort of square blue bottle, and you might see it around in bars and supermarkets. And that's a sort of attempt at, at uh, Beckham and the owner Diageo to try and platform and, and shed some light on grain whiskey. And you can get some very good grain whiskies out there, and it really does make a, a fa- actually makes a fantastic highball, that sort of lengthened soda water drink. But on the whole, grain whiskey is reserved for Uh, use in blends. A lot of your listeners might not know this but if they pick up any bottle of sort of blended scotch whiskey out there a large proportion of that bottle is going to be grain whiskey maybe 60 to 70 percent of it and there's an analogy within the world of sort of the drinks business that a blended uh, whiskey the grain in it is a bit like the canvas of a painting and then the, the the malts that go into it are like the paints that go on top of that so you know the majority of any picture is the canvas itself but the color uh, the personality, the image, really comes from the malts that are used in there. So that's that's the that's the construction of a blend. And that's a
0: lovely analogy as well, by the way, if I can uh, say so. I have a, a a good Scottish friend who has a wonderful collection of single malts and is quite snobby it will be fair to say about blended whiskey am i right in asserting because i think it's mostly influenced by him to be honest in my mind am i right in asserting that there is a kind of conventional wisdom that single malts are superior to blended
1: whiskies this is the sort of great myth of the world of whiskey and what not a lot of people tend to appreciate is the fact that most whiskey even single malt is blended to some degree and, and you'll excuse me confusing the matter with 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 this sort of um word wordsmithery but if you go into a shop and there is a bottle of whiskey on the shelf and it says single malt, single cask, that is from a single distillery and there is a cask that has been filled and quite often just taken directly from the cask and put into the bottle. It's the rawest, rare, rawest and rarest um, idea of what whiskey can be, single malt whiskey can be. However, if you go into a shop and you buy a bottle of, say, know, Glenfiddich 12 year old, that will have been blended by a master blender from a selection of casks from that one distillery so there is artistry that has gone into producing that all casks of a minimum age of 12 years old all from one distillery in this case let's say glenfiddich and the master blender has brought those casks together a limited palette because he's using casks from only one distillery whiskey from only one distillery but he's still bringing together different styles of whiskey different ages of whiskey different cask flavors um, and different maturation levels the difference with that and a blend is that a blenders palette is much broader, m- much wider. Uh, they can use whiskey from, if they're making a blended scotch for example, they can use whiskey from any Scottish distillery in any proportions they like. If they have a, an age statement on it, like Johnny Walker Black Label carries a 12 year old age statement, all of the whiskey in that must be a minimum of 12 years old. However, they can use whiskey from any Scottish distillery. Now, We all know if you sit down with a piece of paper and try to write a story or try to write a book or paint a picture, actually it's very difficult to start with a blank sheet of paper. It's much easier if someone says, can you draw a portrait of my cat or can you paint a picture of my house? So if you're given boundaries like single malt blending is given because you're using casks from just one distillery, well maybe, I wouldn't say it's easier, but certainly you're you're given a game plan to meet. Bringing together a blend for the first time, goodness me, that's that's very very difficult because your, your, your piece of paper is blank, there are no road signs, there are no choices, you can do what you want and go where you like and I think therefore there is a huge amount of artistry uh, behind creating blended whiskey, and it should be lauded and applauded because the people who do that do a very very difficult job. Well, that's a really interesting point.
0: Another art analogy, by the way, you're on fire with your <laughs> art analogies this morning. Um, I've always understood single malt to be artisanal in nature. And when I was doing my homework, just to get my questions right for this, um, it, it sort of occurred to me that actually there are some really quite significant brands out there selling probably, I'm guessing, millions of bottles of single malt. So it's not that artisanal
1: either, is it? Well, it, yes and no. The, the it's a batch process creating single malt so these copper pot stills these copper kettles that i was talking about at the start have to be uh, run dry and refilled run dry and refilled. so there's a batch process to it Uh, obviously you can make it in large batches the bigger your stills but uh, the the more you can make or the more stills you have so that's one classic way that a distillery expands is just by uh, by creating and installing more stills then you can increase your capacity but it's still a it's still a batch process and you know we're still only scratching the surface Uh, some smaller distilleries in scotland are creating uh, you know i would i would always describe a small distillery in scotland making anything a million and a half litres and, and, and fewer um, or less. Uh, that's, that's a distillery like Ardbeg Distillery, for example, on the island of Isla, Two stills, just about to expand to four, makes around a million litres a year. I'd describe that as relatively small. You get some proper artisanal ones making a couple of hundred thousand litres. Big ones, uh, Glenlivet and Macallan, make millions of litres a year. But don't forget that has to then go into casks. It has to be properly looked after. So the more you make, the more casks you have to buy, the bigger your inventory of stock to manage. Um, And you can really ruin a good spirit by putting it in a bad cask. So they're spending a lot of money buying great casks to put this huge amount of liquid into. And even then, Those single malt brands are, I think, the biggest single malt brands in the world are only selling a million nine litre cases a year. So, you know, it's still quite a small product compared to blended scotch, which is actually of the global scotch whiskey market. Ninety six percent of all scotch sold is blended scotch whiskey. So a small part of it is single malt. There are big brands within that. But yeah, it is still very much an artisanal end of of the of the whiskey market. And also uh, wildly successful
0: these days, isn't it? I I was uh, reading uh, last night about the kind of doldrums for the whiskey industry, perhaps uh, the 1970s, I think. Um, It has come on leaps and bounds. The demand is just um, astonishing for it, isn't it?
1: It absolutely is. And it's become one of those things that one of those products that is uh sits comfortably as a a consumable product and people are happy to drink it but also as a a style icon as a as a fashion icon as an as and a status symbol um i think sort of I don't know clothes cars these sorts of things where you can buy a practical car and stick it in your driveway but you can also have a car as a status symbol and i think whiskey has become that where you can have a bottle of say blended scotch for example in your cabinet that you might have for everyday drinking as a highball your sort of run around go to the supermarket product and then you've got your sort of weekend um soft top vintage car which is like your uh, your single malt or your expensive aged blend and and they can sit comfortably side by side in in, in your cabinet at home and uh, and also, when you open a bottle of uh, of whiskey, you don't have to drink, it's not like wine, you don't have to drink it all at once. You can have these open for for many months. And that's the nice thing about it, is you can have a, a, a bottle of blended scotch that is your go-to for cocktails, and you can go through two or three or four of those in a year, or you can have a bottle of very rare, very rarefied blended or, or, or single malt scotch that you take a, a year or two years to, to, to make your way through. And it is your, yeah, like I say, your weekend runaround. So let's talk about uh, geography
0: and sense of place, because obviously that's uh, really important in the context of whiskey. And I tend to whiskey. think of, as a wine man, as terroir in a, a certain kind of way. And I'm always slightly perplexed as to how terroir manifests itself. In whiskey so how
1: is that is it the water is it the grain what is it so across the whiskey the wider whiskey category terroir is quite an interesting um uh, sort of concept if you look across where whiskey is made which is pretty much everywhere in the world now the majority of those places will use malted barley um partly because that's what you know is grown around the world in different countries but if you go to America whiskey often spelt with an e there is made using a a mix of cereals of corn of rye of wheat and of barley. why? because that's what was grown locally and 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 whiskey was a byproduct of of agriculture really you know it was what you made on the farm with your leftover grains so in the same way that cognac or brandy is a is a French product, why because They got grapes and they made a a wine and the wine would spoil so they'd distill it into a spirit and lo and behold you have brandy. In most other parts of the world you have a whiskey that's made out of some sort of cereal. So Ireland tends to be barley, um, Scotland tends to be barley and we're seeing now this move around the world for for distilling from local grains which is is fascinating. Um, And so that's the first part of terroir is, is what is it, which grain is it made from, let's take barley because that's the malted barley is the biggest sort of driver around the world for that possible exception of America as I said and then there's the maturation something I like to call the war rather than the terroir because the atmosphere in which you are maturing your casks has an enormous effect on the speed of the maturation the intensity of the maturation and your final product I'll give you a quick example, um, I visited uh, Highland Park in Orkney in the sort of north, northern isles off the coast of Scotland very very temperate place it's, it's quite often cold it's quite often relatively sort of moist and dry and sort of flips between the two whether it's winter or summer but it never really gets above sort of 15 degrees and gets pretty chilly uh, 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 during the winter and therefore you end up with a very slow laconic maturation of the casks because casks being made from wood can expand and contract and can kind of breathe and that influence on the the spirit inside can be quite different if it's breathing slowly or breathing very quickly. Flip over to going to two other places, Taiwan, to see a distillery called Cavalan, or even um, a great place called Balcones in Texas. The heat and humidity that they get in these distilleries is phenomenal, up to 40 degrees, 50 degrees sometimes in the Texan heat in the summer, massively humid. And these casks are more active as a result. So it's far more about the maturation. Then really is about the, the base product. Although there are many stages that get a spirit to taste as it tastes in the production, but with, with 60 to 70% of the flavor of any whiskey coming from the cask, the maturation conditions are, are far more interesting and far more important in the final flavor. So I like to flip it on its head and say it's less about the terroir and more about the air Very good very good and
0: when it comes to the glass and your tasting blended versus single malt let's go back to that original uh, comparison what are you going to notice are they really so different
1: yes there is a there is a difference where single malt is designed maybe not designed by accident it has more personality in in the in the glass it is uh, each distillery has its own shape of stills uh, which give a different style of spirit. Um, they'll have different what we call cut points so when the spirit comes off that the, the heart of the run is the bit that you want to keep. Um, the heads and the tails can, can be quite um, horrible alcohols and your cut point will determine what sort of flavors you leave in your spirit but then also all the other things that are leading up to it the fermentation time and um, how you malt your barley and all these other things how you grind it all this sort of stuff so single malt will have a lot more personality and actually uh, if you've been doing it as long as i have it, you can you can hopefully on the whole identify individual distilleries sometimes because some of them have such strong personalities when you then bring that together in a blend a blend is designed for consistency it's designed to be more smoother and drinkable and approachable that consistency is is a huge word because if you buy a bottle of single malt you would expect to see some sort of change like a Chinese whispers down the years And, and some geeks like to like myself we like to get bottles of single malt from different eras and try them and see how it's developed and changed With a blend you're looking at consistency Uh, historical blends let's go back to our our johnny walker 12 or shivers brothers 12 something like that shivers regal 12 the master blenders of today are trying to create the same product um, that the master blenders 10 20 30 40 50 60 70 100 years ago were were creating Uh, but they've got different palettes because the single malts are changing all the time and, you know, developing differently and uh, production techniques change. So it's like uh, a student, another art analogy, it's like a student of a great master painter trying to recreate those old masters time and time again as demand goes up, uh, but using a, a different set of paints. And that's incredibly difficult. I mean, imagine trying to have to paint the Mona Lisa every morning. <laughs> I think there's <laughs> there's always gonna be some slight change, but they're aiming for consistency. And you're aiming for the treble. You've got three
0: art analogies in one chat. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, but another tactic. good one. Another <laughs> yeah, goodie. Uh, it's, it reminds me, actually, of of, of the, the way you know the 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 blenders, the chef de cave work in champagne, actually, and that uh, the importance of that, uh, how style, that consistency. It's such an extraordinary art. It really is. I'm I'm, I'm full of admiration for people being able to do that. Um, you're, you're celebrated uh, for your tasting notes. Uh, which are um, extravagant, uh, witty, uh, at times um, a, a bit sort of batshit crazy, frankly. And um, I, I, you're also uh, obviously a, a leading judge um, and you're about to, to do the IWSC, presumably the judging blind, uh, judging whiskies presumably as part of what you do. So um, what are you looking for in the perfect whisky?
1: It's about balance and complexity. And I, I was taught early on in my Uh, whiskey sort of career by some wiser older um, uh, actually gents in the industry who had been making whiskey for a long time to not confuse power with complexity and I think that probably goes probably true in wine as well but when you're nosing blind and you're looking into a glass It's about looking beyond the bluster i guess and looking down to see what the 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 nuances and the complexities are beneath that and it's it's quite interesting with with whiskey because you can go with a high abv you know that that can have some personality coming out the glass immediately you can go with big you know immediate flavors of the cask if you're using a fresh sherry cask for example that can jump out of the car that can jump out of the glass at you and be very appealing at the start but it's about digging down and getting into the glass and finding complexity in a in a blend is should be easier because it is inherently a more complex product but again if you're mixing colors together in a palette it's very easy to mix too many colors together and just end up with brown whereas with single malt it's, it's more about the individual primary colours and going, well, well, I know this is, a, let's say, a 12-year-old single malt from the island of Islay uh, where we know that they develop very good peaty, smoky whisky. Now, if I'm presented with a 12-year-old you're looking for a good level of peat nothing too overpowering nothing too complex but supports the the notes of the barley and the the malt that's in there with a hint of oak because it's 12 years old you don't want it to be to be too over oaked and too heavy but also you don't want to taste too much spirit it's about finding that balance but in a singular way because it's single malt with a blend you're looking for layers of flavor you're saying well can i maybe taste a touch of peat can i taste some sherry casks? Can I have got some light delicate heather notes from the Highlands? Do I have some bolder oily notes from the say the Campbelltown region? Have I got some some of that lighter vanilla creaminess that comes from grain whiskey? And, and if I have got all of that how does it sit in balance? Does it all work together in harmony? So you judge them differently but ultimately they're, they're both about looking at complexity and balance uh, and looking at those little nuances that, that really elevate something from from good to great. So just kind of like wine judging and then uh, different as well,
0: which um, I suppose makes a lot of sense because it's uh, ultimately it's still a a beverage. Um, Do you have a desert island whiskey? Do you have a go to that you just absolutely love more than any other? That's a tough question
1: and I, I think for me it, it would be less of a desert island whisky and more an archipelago cellar, I think, of, 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 of different whiskies because, I, you know, on some nights I love a peated whisky. I love a, a whisky that brings me some flavours of smoke and saline notes like a Talisker or a Lagavulin or an Ardbeg, great single malts. And, and they really, if you've ever had a chance to visit these places, some of these single malt distilleries, especially the ones on the islands, the minute that you stick your nose in it in a glass it just transports you right back to being at those distilleries there's something incredibly visceral and uh, uh, an elemental about them so it, it would probably be a peated whiskey but then other nights i just fancy something that's a little bit more light and more heather driven so a highland whiskey that's sherried like a tam do or a a Dalmore. Um, and then, you know, the middle of that Venn diagram would be a great blend, a blend that brings you elements of smoke, an element that brings you elements of of, of heathery notes from, from the Highlands. You know, you can't really look beyond a, like a Johnny Walker 12 or a Shivers 12 or something like that. And maybe something with a little bit more age, a Royal Salute 21. So I think I'd have to take a portfolio with me. But if you put a gun to my head, let's go with Royal Salute 21, because it's got great age, it's got great complexity, and you've got all of the elements of Scotland in there. Lovely. Well, it sounds great. I shall look it out and I shall
0: visit your archipelago at some point as well because it sounds great. (laughs) It's been really fascinating, uh, genuinely, absolutely illuminating talking to you about this. Uh, I've learned a lot. I hope people listening have as well. And thank you very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour again, Joel. Thank you very much, David.
1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The
0: Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. And there's just time before we go to have a couple more medal winners to Spain. And a real bargain here, Morrison's The Best Marc de los Rios Rioja Gran Reserva 2013. Bit of a mouthful, so was the wine. It was a silver medal winner. The judges said wild brambles and forest fruit on the nose, opening up to a broader palette with strawberries and sweet cherries, creamy and expressive with coconut and mocha finish. And that's currently just 11 quid, which is pretty incredible for a wine of that caliber uh, with that age on it. And to Italy, Cantina Trexenta Goy Maggiore 2017. From Sardinia, a silver medal winner the judges, including me on this occasion, saying a lovely, rich and ripe nose with a hint of minerality, ripe plums and roses with a rich overtone of olives, leading to a fresh finish with velvety firm tannins. And that's available through jascots.co.uk. And that's it for another episode of The Drinking Hour. If you liked what you heard, please do tune in again next time. If you're listening via iTunes, uh, we'd be incredibly grateful if you'd give us a little uh, five-star tick afterwards, because that's uh, really helpful. And you can contact us at at foodfmradio.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at foodfmradio. And I'm at Venusaurus. For now, though, thanks for listening and speak to you next time.
1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM